0: Me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 in just a moment. Can you be Christian and not believe in the resurrection? This is a headline that was shouted from the Salt Lake Tribune a few years ago. It seems like a crazy question. You would think that as soon as the journalist began researching this topic among Christian clergy, she would have decided it was a foolish question that wasn't worth pursuing. But instead, her opening paragraph states this many scholars dismiss it. Some theologians downplay it. Even some worshipers dodge it. But for most Christians, the idea that Jesus Christ's body literally was resurrected is a given, a fundamental of the faith. Now the thing that's surprising here is it wasn't unanimous among the Christian leaders that she interviewed. That, they're, that without the resurrection, our preaching and even our faith and our very lives are useless. There were believers in the church at Corinth who had accepted the message of the gospel as Paul had presented it to them. But somewhere along the way, they had begun to doubt the resurrection. They had decided it was not an essential doctrine to become a Christian. You didn't have to believe it. To be, a believer, to be a follower of Christ. And it is likely that Greek thought had influenced them. The Greeks believed that the body was evil. They believed that the spirit was good, but the body was evil. And the body tethered the spirit from being able to achieve the fullness that it deserved, full good. And so immortality was for the spirit, but not for the body. Christians, however, believe in a bodily resurrection that was, according to the Apostle Paul, an essential belief to be a Christian. W.A. Chriswell says about these verses we're about to study, that these verses are the clearest and most concise in all of the Scriptures as to the essence of the gospel. Paul sought to make sure the Christians that were in the church at Corinth had a clear understanding of the gospel. And that's what I want to do for you today. I want to make sure that you, the viewer, you, the listener, understands exactly the essentials of the gospel. So maybe you're here today and you're watching this and you are a believer. I hope that this will be a source of encouragement, that it will be a reminder for you of the message that we have to tell others. And if you're watching this and you're not a believer, I hope that that this will help you to understand the fundamentals of what Christians believe, and that you will then consider it for yourself. So let's look at what Paul wrote in the book of 1 Corinthians. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. He writes this, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the first thing that I want us to see is that Paul is trying to show the gospel to them. And that's what I want to do for you. I want to show the gospel to you. Show the gospel. Paul wanted to make sure that the believers had an absolute understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message that had been given to them when he was there, and they had accepted it. They had placed their faith in it. And yet now they were denying the very foundation of their belief system. They were denying the resurrection. Paul says the gospel of Jesus is the way in which they are saved and are being saved. The word Paul used here could be translated as delivered or rescued or healed. It is the idea that the salvation Christ offers is the deliverance from sin and from judgment. It is a healing of our broken condition. It is a healing of the broken relationship that occurred between the Creator God and His creation, mankind. Yet, you and I as Christians know that we are not immediately taken into the physical presence of God. Salvation has an already and a not yet quality to it. We are saved immediately And we're able to enjoy a renewed relationship with God immediately, but that salvation has not yet culminated. And it won't yet culminate until Christ returns and establishes His kingdom. But Paul made it clear that anyone who did not hold to this gospel that he had preached could not be saved. Only by the gospel could they be saved from God's coming judgment. Salvation comes through belief in the good news. That's what gospel means, good news, the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. There's the initial belief where you say, I believe that this is true. We're going to talk about what this is here in just a moment. But it doesn't end there. Salvation is a process which requires a continuality, a continuity of belief. Now, there are many people that will say, I'm a Christian, I walked an aisle, I said a prayer. But then they leave the church, they never look back, they never think about Jesus anymore, and they think they're secure in their salvation because they made that decision that one time. Paul says that you are being saved if you hold to the message I preached to you. So there is a condition to the salvation. You must persevere in the belief. If you've been with us through our Revelation study, you've seen how over and over Jesus Christ says the exact same thing. To the church that conquers, to the church that holds to the truth, to the church that perseveres to the end, they will receive the kingdom of God. Paul believed that saving faith would set itself apart from insincere faith through time. True believers would persevere in their commitment to Christ. They wouldn't allow anything to waver them in their belief. And so uh, he says a, a temporary faith makes no appreciable difference in one's life because the gospel has failed to take an effect. If you claim to be a believer, but you don't believe in God anymore, you made a decision one time and you think you're secure, let me tell you, I'm sorry, but you're not secure in your salvation. Salvation comes to those who persevere in the faith. If you lose your belief in the gospel, you were not saved. You may have been a member of the church. You may have served faithfully, but then you left. And Scripture tells us they left because they were not part of us. And so you must understand that Paul precludes those who deny the resurrection from claiming salvation in God. It is an essential belief to the faith because Christ is, in fact, risen. He is risen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. "'For I passed on to you, as most important, that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures,' and that he was buried. And we're going to stop there for just a moment. I want us to look at the substitutionary death. Christ's substitutionary death. Paul wanted the believers at Corinth to understand that the proclamation that he had given to them and is about to reaffirm to them, to give to them again, is not something that originated with him. It's not Paul's gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was what he had received himself, and he was simply passing on this confession of faith to them. It was a formula that was used throughout the scriptures and by the early church that details the essentials of the faith. And so the first idea was that of the substitutionary death of Christ. Paul wrote in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person who has ever lived is guilty before God. We have all rebelled against Him and done our own thing, and this has condemned us to death. And Paul also wrote in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And so that's what we deserve. We deserve death that is coming to us because of our sin and our rebellion against God. But notice what Paul continued to say when he wrote in Romans 3, verse 24, "...they," that is, those who believe, "...are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as an atoning sacrifice in His blood." received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous. Listen to this. Declare righteous the one who has faith in Christ. By taking our place on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty of, for our sins, yours and mine. He was the atoning sacrifice. He made reparation to God for the wrong that we had done against Him. He made reparation to God the Father for our sin, for our rebellion against Him. So when God the Father looks at us, He doesn't see the sinner that stands before Him, but rather He sees the perfection of the Son of God. He doesn't see our wrong, but he sees the blood of Christ. Paul says that Jesus died according to the Scriptures. He's probably thinking specifically of Isaiah 53, where Isaiah prophesies of this suffering servant that was coming to take the place for the people who had committed the crime against God. That's us. And so, therefore, Christ fulfilled the Scriptures. Paul gives evidence of the death of Christ and the fact that he was buried. He was laid down in a tomb. You, you don't put someone in a tomb unless they're dead normally. The Romans were the ones who executed him. And guess what? The Romans were really good at it. They really knew how to kill people. And so they didn't fail in killing him. Jesus was dead. He didn't just swoon. He didn't just pass out on the cross, but he was in fact dead. They shoved a spear in his side and water came out. He was dead and he was buried. But thankfully for all of us, he didn't stay dead. Look at what he says at the end of verse 4. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so we see this supernatural resurrection. The supernatural resurrection. Paul affirmed that the resurrection of Jesus is essential for the gospel message. The resurrection testifies that Jesus was indeed the perfect sacrifice that was needed for us. It verifies that He paid the penalty for our sins. Paul says in a few verses later in uh, chapter 15, verse 17 through 19, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep, that is, they have died in Christ, have also perished. If you deny the resurrection, those who have died have no hope. But if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. The belief in the bodily resurrection of Christ was essential to the gospel because it fulfilled the Old Testament Scriptures. Listen to what Hosea said. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us and He will heal us. He has wounded us, and He will bind up our wounds. He will revive us after two days, and on the third day He will raise us up so we can live in His presence. And throughout the Old Testament, we see the deliverance often comes on the third day. And so if you're reading this, and you're hearing this gospel with the Old Testament in mind, you are expecting this miraculous salvation to come on the third day. It comes as no surprise to you. In fact, Jesus himself referred to the sign of Jonah. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 and 40. Jesus answered them, saying, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And you know, interestingly, when Jonah was in the belly of the fish... He referred to it as being in Sheol. That's the Hebrew word for the grave. So Jesus used this Old Testament story to predict his own situation, his own death and his own resurrection. But that wasn't the only time that he did it. Throughout the Gospels, you see several times where Jesus said that he was going to die, he was going to be betrayed and he would die and he would rise again on the third day. But the, the disciples just dismissed that because it's crazy. It's crazy to say, well, they're going to kill me, but I'm going to be alive again. But that's exactly what happened. The Greek term that Paul uses here, rose, is in the perfect tense. And so it emphasizes that not only did he rise, but it's not only did he live again, not only is he resurrected, but it's a continual thing. See, when he resurrected Lazarus, Lazarus came back from the dead Okay, and then he lived for a while and then he died again and now is dead. In the Old Testament, you you read stories about the the prophets going and, and rising people from the dead and they would live for a little while and then they would die again. But that's not the case with Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is an everlasting resurrection. It's one that doesn't end. It's an ongoing thing and it has ongoing effects. See, Christ is not a dead Savior. He is a risen Savior that is still living today. He didn't live again and die again later, but He still lives today, and He is living and working and doing what He can as the living God who's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's the second person of the triune head, Godhead. The God the Father, God the Son, that's Jesus, and then God the Spirit, They are all working to accomplish salvation for us. Let's continue reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5. He says, Paul writes, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over five hundred brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one born at the wrong time, he appeared to me. So Paul points that there are staunch witnesses. There are staunch witnesses to the resurrection. He seeks to show that the resurrection is well-founded. Early Christian evangelists would validate the certainty of Jesus' resurrection by recounting his post tomb appearances to these authoritative eyewitnesses. Peter is referred to here as the first of these witnesses with Paul being the last. But we know, according to the passage that Joan and Chloe read for us earlier, that there was actually a group of women who saw him first. But women didn't have, uh, weren't able to give testimony in Old Testament or New Testament times. And so they were uh, disregarded in a sense. But Peter, and the twelve. And the 500, and James, and the apostles, and Paul were all considered authoritative witnesses. So following Peter, as Paul writes here, Cephas, same name, following Peter, Christ appeared to the twelve, which is a term, speaking of the original disciples, even though Judas Iscariot was no longer part of them, Uh, In my opinion, the testimony of the twelve is one of the strongest. Because following the death of Jesus, his most devout followers were hiding in fear. They thought someone was going to come, the government was going to come and kill them. And then all of a sudden the twelve came to this belief that Jesus had risen from the dead and they were willing to die for that belief. Their belief in the resurrection transformed these men from fearful and hiding to going out and boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church tradition says that all of these men except for John died as martyrs for their beliefs and -hmm. for their confessions of Christ as risen from the dead. They went from being afraid and hiding in a room to being willing to die for the belief that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. After appearing to the 12, Paul records that Jesus appeared to over 500 believers at once. Paul added that most of these were witnesses that were still alive. Some of them had died, but he's, he's saying to the church at Corinth, uh, at Corinth to check out these witnesses. Go ask them, verify what I'm saying to you with one of these 500 witnesses. Jesus' resurrection was not just his spirit being taken up into heaven. His body was raised from the death, and he was not only seen by individuals and not just by small groups, but he was seen by large groups as well. Now, critics have tried to dismiss this group sighting by calling it mass hallucination. But the problem is that mass hallucination means they all would have had to been together at the same time. But Jesus appeared to different groups at different times, and they all experienced the same thing. They all said that Jesus came to them in a bodily resurrection at different times. And so that's not how mass hallucination works. They weren't all together, but they were separate in various times. Another testimony that I find quite compelling is that of James. James is the brother of Jesus. The Scripture tells us that James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah while he was alive. And honestly, who could blame him? If one of my brothers came and tried to tell me that they were the Messiah, that they were the Christ, I would probably have them committed. But James later becomes not just a believer, but a leader in the church in Jerusalem. He also died as a martyr. So if Jesus appeared to his brother and convinced him that he was the resurrected Christ, I'm pretty convinced. But after he appeared to James, Paul says he appeared to all of the apostles, except for, of course, Paul. And most scholars believe that this refers to Jesus' ascension when he was returning to heaven. He, he made it known that this event was going to take place And who would want to miss out on that? So they all gathered together to see him ascended. And before he ascended up into heaven, he commissioned them and he said, I am going to send you as my witnesses into Judea and to Samaria and to all the world to be a witness, to tell of what I have done, what I have taught and what you have seen. He commissioned them to go be witnesses to the world. And guess what? They did it. They did it. Here we are 2,000 years later, on the other side of the globe, speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 2,000 years later. Let us continue to be faithful in telling people about the miraculous work that God did for our salvation. But then finally, Paul refers to his own witness. See, even though Christ had ascended into heaven, he came back in bodily form to Paul. Paul makes it clear that he saw Jesus. He didn't see Jesus' spirit. He saw the body of Jesus. Jesus in his bodily resurrection. Jesus was not raised from the dead as a spirit, but as a physical body. In Luke chapter 24, verse 38, Jesus says to his disciples, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see that I have. See, the Greeks believed in the immortality of the soul, but Paul sought to help them understand that the body would be resurrected, as Christ's example demonstrated in that case. And in the rest of the chapter... Paul defends the bodily resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the believer. and He speaks of his experience here in an interesting way. He says that he was born at the wrong time. The, Paul, the word Paul uses here is ectramati, which refers to a premature birth, the same word that would be used for an abortion. Unlike the 12 apostles, Paul became an apostle without having this gestational period. See, whereas the others had known Jesus during his time on earth, they had ministered alongside him, they had listened to his teaching. But rather than being eased into apostleship like they were, Paul was dramatically confronted on the Damascus Road. He had a dramatic experience that made him into an apostle for Christ. So although his apostleship was rather sudden, that doesn't mean that it's any less than the others, but the other apostles all verified and validated that Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they accepted his writings as Scripture. And so, Paul was the final, that we have recorded, appearance of the risen Christ, except for the book of Revelation, I suppose. But in this passage, Paul's the final. Look with me at the end here, verse 9 through 11. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed." So we see God's stunning grace. We see God's stunning grace that Paul closes this section by pointing to his own unworthiness. But God's amazing, stunning grace, and Paul considers himself as less than worthy of being called an apostle because he had previously persecuted the church. He had killed people who testified to this gospel. But now by the grace of God, Paul is the one who is testifying to it. You know, by human standards, Paul would have been subject to the idea of a tooth for a tooth or an eye for an eye. But that's not how God works. God described himself in this way in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. He's slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. See, God is loving. God is merciful, and he's full of grace. And so when mankind rebelled against him, he set into plan a motion. Set into motion a plan, rather. I'm sorry about that. To bring us, all of humanity, back to himself. When we broke the relationship that we had with God by our sin, by our rebellion against Him, He sought us out. When Adam and Eve sinned and they hid in the garden, God went looking for them. God comes looking for us. When we subjected ourselves to slavery, to sin, and to death, He loved us so much that He sought to deliver us from it. And it cost Him everything. Look at John 3.16 For God loved the world in this way that He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. See, Jesus, who is God the Son, He's the second person of the triune God. He was sent by the Father to take on flesh and to live a perfect life. And yet He was to die on a cruel cross for sins that He did not commit but rather the sins that we committed. And His sins, or our sins were placed on Him. And then He was buried in a borrowed tomb for three days later, He rose and He is risen. God the Father raised Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and He lives forever. Jesus has conquered death and as a believer, if you believe in Jesus and what He has done and you believe in the resurrection, you share in the inheritance of Christ and we can be united with Him forever in a bodily resurrection, just as He was. As Paul closes, he says, Whether then it is I that preach, or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. This gospel that he presented, that he was... Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to all these witnesses. This gospel, Paul says, is uniform. All of the apostles agree that this is the gospel. This is what has to be preached. This is what has to be believed in order to be saved. If you don't believe it, You can't even claim to be a Christian. You must believe it, and you must cling to it. So the question I have for you is, do you believe? Do you believe that He is risen from the dead? Do you believe that He is risen from the dead, and that He offers you the gift of eternal life with Him? Romans 6, 23, at the end of that, He says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift that God has for you is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you believe in the death and in the resurrection of Christ, you can be saved from the judgment that is coming. God said that he would not leave the guilty unpunished. The book of Revelation records what's going to happen in the last days. History is moving forward and is moving toward an end. And then, when that end gets here, God will punish those who have sinned against him, which is all people, as we've already said. But the one who trusts in the resurrection of Jesus Christ finds in him a shelter from the judgment. Paul also wrote in Romans 10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. And he says in verse 13, For anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He also wrote to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians 6, verse 2, at an acceptable time, I listened to you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And it can be for you. It can be for you. So won't you believe in Him? Won't you repent of your sins? Confess them with your mouth to the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I have sinned against you. I am a sinner. Forgive me my sin. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died to take my sin and that He rose on the third day so that I could be saved and dwell with Him forever. Won't you pray that to God? Won't you accept His salvation today? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You so much for the great love that You have for us. God, that You sent Your Son to die on a cruel cross, to take the sins of someone like me, a sinner who's been condemned and unclean. God, You made us clean. You made me clean. You made me whole. You brought salvation, and I'm no longer condemned But now, instead of condemnation, I receive the inheritance that is Christ Jesus. I receive the eternal life, the eternal relationship with you, my God. May your name be praised forever and ever. God, we love you. I thank you. And I praise you for being a loving merciful, and gracious God. It's in the holy God. and precious name of Jesus, the Son of God, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that I lift this prayer to you, Father God. Amen. We're going to close by singing Amazing Grace. Why don't you sing with me?